Welcome to Bite Size Human Geography, a podcast meant for students, their parents, and anyone who wants a better understanding of the world. We investigate global issues using human geography concepts. It's human geography made simple. Today, we are going to be discussing something that is going to make you so smart. It's like the best party trick ever, except you'll be the smartest person in the room in any gathering when we start actually having gatherings again. Hello and welcome. My name is Kara Smart, and I am so excited to be here with you today. We're going to be discussing one of my favorite topics to discuss in the class that I teach, AP Human Geography. And it's something that I'm actually kind of shocked isn't out there a little bit more. Uh, it's really actually quite positive uh, for the future of the planet. It's hopeful. It shows the progress of humanity over time. Th- there will be challenges, of course, but... Uh, There are some amazing things that are occurring on this planet, and I think it's finally time we started talking about some of them. Normally, when I begin a new unit for my class, I'll ask some questions to get the kids thinking, Uh, questions to gauge their prior knowledge about subjects. So, for instance, when I start the agriculture unit, the first thing I do is I ask kids to think about their favorite meal and, you know, describe it or maybe, uh, you know, ask questions about do they cook or do they even have a garden in their backyard when we discuss um, culture, we uh, basically rank and, and kind of think about the pop culture influences for the generations in the United States, really from the 50s on the, all the way up until uh, current pop culture. When we begin our population and migration unit, the first question that I always ask my students is, what do they know about the population on the planet? What specifically? Do you know where people live? Do you know how long uh, do they live? You know, life expectancy levels, how do they die? So for instance, you know, we have a discussion about how Japan, it's the longest, they're the longest lived people on the planet. And Japanese women are uh, actually, they're the longest lived people on the planet. 87 years is uh, the average life expectancy for Japanese women. And then you can contrast that with a place like Afghanistan, uh, their average uh, age now. It's actually gone up quite a bit. It's 64 years now, but back in 1970, the average life expectancy was 37 years. So just little things like that can kind of get you thinking about uh, population and demographics uh, on, on the planet. So my question for you is this. What do you know, not only about basic demographic information about the planet, but specifically about overpopulation? What have you been taught about overpopulation uh, on the planet? And if you're probably like most people, uh, you've been taught that the planet is horribly overpopulated and that very soon we're going to run out of space. We're going to be 11, 12 billion people by the time the year 2100 rolls around and it's going to be horrible, and we're all going to die slow, painful deaths and not have enough food, and it'll be a Malthusian nightmare. So I'm here to tell you that perhaps, just perhaps, this might be a bit of hyperbole and a bit um, overblown, shall we say, uh, in the news media and in some academic circles as well, because there's a tool that we're going to use today called the demographic transition model. And this is a way to show progress in countries over time from very, very low uh, economic levels, high population levels, and show them as they develop, as they industrialize, until they get to the point where they become like what you would see in, uh, let's say, the United States or uh, Japan or someplace like Italy. So the demographic transition model was made by a gentleman named Warren Thompson, who was a demographer, back in 1929. 
And uh, this is a model that shows a change in a society's population over time. So from high crude birth rates and high crude death rates to low crude birth rates and low crude death rates. And so uh, for a lot of the vocabulary terms that I'm using here, like total fertility rate or TFR or crude birth rates, crude death rates, I'm going to put all those definitions in the bottom of the show notes. So I don't have to spend time actually defining those and we can kind of just jump right through. I figure it'll take you two seconds to actually go look at the show notes to see what I'm talking about. And it'll make our conversation go much, much smoother. So if you were to Google image search the demographic transition model or maybe even DTM, you would find an image, um, looks like a chart, and it has these lines on it, these lines going up and down that show birth rates and death rates and total population rates. I'll put a link to that at the bottom of the show notes for you. But when you look at an image of the DTM model, there are five separate columns and each one of those columns represents a different stage in the life of a country. So what I wanna do now is I wanna go through each one of these stages uh, with you. And then we're gonna talk at the end about this thought that the planet is going to be severely overpopulated in the not too distant future. So stage one of the demographic transition model is what we call the low growth rate. And this is a time when you, uh, you have high crude birth rates and high crude death rates. But the natural increase rate, the, the rate at which a society's population grows, essentially, was just about zero. And that's because if you have a lot of births, but you also have a lot of deaths, those deaths are canceling out the, the babies that are being born. This has been the bulk of human history. Bulk of human history was in stage one. Uh, and this is due to several different reasons. This is, goes all the way back to hunter-gatherer times, all the way through the beginning of civilizations, through the agricultural revolution, when you know human beings figured out, hey, if I plant these seeds in the ground, that I can get food. <laughs> I, can, I can feed myself and my family and maybe have enough to feed others with. Uh, this is a time that's pre-sanitation, so, you know, and, 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 and pre-medicine, so just a total lack of understanding of things like germ theory and disease, and oh, it's probably not a good idea that I have my latrine, you know, I poop right next to my food. Not a good idea. We know that today, of course, but um, that knowledge is something that took a lot of time to develop. Uh, you also had a super unstable food supply because you did have a bulk of this time that was not spent in agriculture. So you never knew where your next meal was going to be coming from. Uh, and so because of that, you had a tremendous amount of deaths, things that would, would not, you know, something like strep, uh, you know, kids get strep all the time. I'm sure probably you had strep uh, quite a bit when you were a kid. It's something that's very common. And normally we go get our little bottle of amoxicillin to knock it out, right? Or augment it or something like that to knock it out. But even back 150 years ago, before the advent of antibiotics, strep was a major, major killer. Or what happens if, you know, maybe you broke your arm? Um, if you go back 150 years, 200 years, the, the, the possibility was high that infection might set in and you might get something like sepsis and die. So the infinite amounts of ways that you could get injured and die in a stage one society pretty much canceled out the babies that were being born during a stage one society. Uh, and, and stage one takes us all the way through to the industrial revolution that began in England. Uh, so it's a long period of human history uh, that basically takes us up all the way to the early 1800s in England. There are currently no countries on the planet 
uh, thank goodness, that are in stage one of demographic transition. Now, there are some small pockets uh, that you'll see. So think of like the Amazonian River Basin or maybe some places in Australia, center of Australia, uh, you know, traditional Aboriginal cultures that tend to be isolated. But for the most part, these are uh, any place that's a stage one on the planet today, they're going to be isolated, small isolated tribes that uh, more often than not, their countries go to uh, uh, great lengths to try and isolate them from modern society so they can preserve their cultural uniqueness. So I'm sure you're thinking, okay, well, smarty pants, how do we get from stage one to stage two? Well, that transition, that shift uh, occurs with the Industrial Revolution. And of course, I said before, it happened in England, and it happened in England for a whole host of reasons, which would be a completely different podcast. Um, But needless to say, England was first. So uh, right around this time with the Industrial Revolution, you also began to see just this widespread uh, reinvigoration of science and political thought and economic thought. And all of these things contributed to just a shift in society. With the Industrial Revolution, people began to move from rural areas, which were agrarian, to major urban centers, which were the where the industrial powerhouses were. And they did it because they they weren't necessarily needed on the farm as much because of modern inventions. And also because, quite frankly, living in the city just paid better. You were able to better provide for your family if you lived in the city and worked in a factory than if you were to work uh, on a farm uh, farming. So you saw this shift, you saw this massive movement to cities. Uh, and because of this, uh, because of diseases and things like that, these urban centers very quickly realized that they had to set up water and sanitation methods to deal with this growing population. So education levels were still very low during this time, especially for women. But even though you had these lower education levels, uh, you still had some people that were beginning to investigate things like scientific method and um, modern medical practices that led to an overall quality of improvement in the life of the citizens of countries like England. So overall, you began to see this massive growth in wealth and health of the population of England, which of course led to collapsing crude death rates. So the crude birth rates were still very high. There was really no artificial birth control. This is a social role of women was still very much as mother um, and, you know, baby producer. But to see the crude death rate decline, uh, you know, that formula for natural increase rate is crude birth rate minus crude death rate. Well, if your crude death rate is collapsing, then that means that your population level is going to grow because your crude birth rate is still high, okay? And so what I normally tell my students is the reason the reason for the population spike that you begin to see during this time, and actually, if you were to plot it out, it begins to look like a J curve if you were to, to plot it out um, on a graph. But the reason for this population spike that begins to occur is simply because people are dying less fast. So there are countries on the planet that are in stage two right now. Uh, so remember, this is where England was back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And this is where certain countries are right now. So if you look at a country like Niger, Niger is in Africa, and they have the highest fertility rate on the planet. So they have a lot of babies that are being born on the planet. 
They also have relatively low sanitation levels, low levels of education, um, and they're kind of at the beginning of their industrialization slash development process, okay? So if you look at Niger today, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of view that you would have looking at a country like England back in the 1800s. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, all right, Kara, Niger today and England back in the 1800s don't look even anything remotely alike, especially with regards to their economics. But remember, this is about demographics. The economics comes into play as well, but every country develops differently. And of course, this is one of the weaknesses of a model like this is it's really hard to apply to different regions. It works really well for places like Europe or maybe even the United States. But because we have interventions that have occurred, especially with uh, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, that come into places like Niger and they say, hey, here's some anti-malarial medicine or here's some medicine to help with HIV or here's some... Uh, you know, here's some birth control methods, that kind of thing. This doesn't necessarily, it's hard for this model to be applicable to every single country on the planet in the same exact way that it was applicable to England, but it still works for the purposes of application and just understanding of the planet. So where do you find these countries on the planet? For the most part, the majority of sub-Saharan Africa and uh, a few countries in Latin America would fit this profile. And they're really easy to identify if you look at their population pyramid. And they have that classic pyramid structure on a population pyramid. I'll put some links at the bottom of the show notes for you for that. But it's just a really classic population pyramid for these stage two countries. So they're super easy to identify. We tend to think, we tend to call them third world countries. We don't really like to use that term anymore. We it, the, the preferable term would be to call them lesser developed countries or LDCs. But that's the kind of country that you're talking about that is in a stage two of demographic tr- transition. So super high growth rates, Uh, primarily because your death rate is collapsing. So I want you to envision the United States at the end of World War II, you know, kind of making its way into the 1950s. And that's what a stage three country would look like. A stage three country or the moderate growth phase of demographic transition This is a country that, uh, a country enters into stage three when that crude birth rate begins to drop sharply. So remember, back in stage two, what made stage two stage two is the fact that the people were dying less fast, right? The crude death rate dropped radically. The same thing begins to happen in stage three, but with birth rates instead. So this is a stage where people are beginning to choose for the very first time to have children. And part of this is due to the fact that you have this decline in infant mortality rates. Okay, you don't have a lot of babies that are dying when they're born uh, with their mothers because of difficulty in childbirth. And you're beginning to see um, the advent of modern medicine, things like vaccinations, uh, modern medical care for all kinds of different diseases, things that would have killed uh, killed you are not going to kill you anymore. And you've also had that shift, that full shift from rural to urban. And so society is just beginning to look very, very different in stage three. You're not going to have the issues anymore with regards to food supply. Your, your, your citizens are going to be fully fed. Uh, industrialization is really kind of uh, churning along. Uh, it's uh, really the, the, the main driving force behind your country. You're beginning to see the emergence of your service sector. The service sector is, of course, 
you know, like increasing in, in things like accountants and doctors and teachers. You're not necessarily manufacturing things to make money. You're providing a service instead. All of these things, and including you know, increased medical uh, care and, and sanitation is full is throughout the entire country, or through most of the entire country. That's a stage three society. Okay, so you're not having this booming birth rate anymore. You're not having a ton of people dying anymore. It's pretty much just beginning to even out. Now, your population levels in your country are still going to be increasing during this time due to demographic momentum. So all those babies that were being born in stage one and stage two. Uh, they're all having children, and so your populations will continue. Your population uh, levels will continue to increase, but over time, you're, that's going to begin to even out just a tad. Stage three countries. There are many stage three countries on the planet. India is a really good example of a stage three country. Many, many countries in uh, Latin America would be considered stage three countries. There are a few countries uh, in on the continent of Africa that are considered stage three. Uh, you could make the argument, I think, probably very strongly that China is considered a stage three country. Although with China, it's interesting because the eastern portions of China are highly developed. The coastal cities where you see all the, you know, the, the, the mega cities that you know everything about. Those are um, all highly developed uh, cities, modern infrastructure uh, some infrastructure that looks better than ours here in the West. But the Western portion of China is still very, very poor, very agrarian, uh, lower levels of education. And so that's why we tend to um, make the argument for China being stage three, just because there's a huge disparity between Eastern China and Western China. So if stage three countries were all about having fewer children, stage four countries are all about women. Because stage four societies are almost entirely based upon what happens to the choices that women make with regards to uh, education, having children, all those things. So a question I always ask my students is, you know, especially the ladies, or actually it is the ladies, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do when you get older? Do you just want to have children? Do you want to, you know, go to college? What do you want to do? And of course, they all say they want to go to college. And the thought of children is, okay, yeah, we'll have children, but not right now. I want to go to college. I want to get my education. Then I want to get a job. And children is something I want to think about later on down the road. And this is pretty much the driving force behind a stage four society. We know how expensive college is. And so women have made the decision, okay, I either have to pay off my student loans or I definitely want to work to show value for that college degree. And so that delays childbirth a little bit. And then maybe they delay getting married. And so maybe they're 28, 29 by the time that they get married. And then they want to wait a few more years to have children. That puts them into the mid-30 range. And as you know, fertility levels begin to decline precipitously uh, beginning in your 30s. Uh, but definitely as you're approaching 40. And so this is why women have fewer children, not only because just the, the stresses of trying to balance home life and work, uh, not an easy thing to do, uh, even in the best of circumstances, uh, but definitely the more children you have, the more challenging that this becomes. And so that's why in stage four societies, you do tend to see a, a decreasing uh, crude birth rate because women make the decision, oh gosh, this is just too challenging to have more than one child. We have, of course, uh, widespread use of things like birth control, family planning methods, that kind of thing. Uh, in, in addition to having good health care, so children are not dying like they would have been dying in, in stage one, you know, or even stage two with very high infant mortality rates. 
So the children that you do have are likely to live to adulthood. Uh, because of that and because of uh, quality health care and good food supply, uh, people feel content not to have to have a lot of children to you know, hopefully replace the ones uh, that, that may have died. They're, they're not going to be dying because of things like health care. And they're also not needed to do things like work in the fields like what you would see in a stage one or stage two society. Children in a stage four society are actually, I don't want to call them not a necessity, uh, but they aren't necessarily a necessity to, for an individual person. And so that's why you see all throughout stage four countries, uh, rapidly declining birth rates. And of course, this becomes concerning uh, as you look into the future, because if children are not being born, they're, they're, they aren't going to be working uh, at jobs someday. They aren't going to be paying taxes someday. And that has some really severe implications for the long-term health of a stage four country moving forward, as we will see uh, shortly here when we take a look at um, Western Europe. So right before um, everything started to shut down with uh, the coronavirus outbreak here in the United States, uh, of course, Europe was shutting down uh, sooner than we were because they were infected uh, much sooner than we were, and Italy in particular. And we happened to be uh, still in, in school during this time. And my students were coming in with news articles telling me, hey, Mrs. Smart, have you seen what's going on in Italy? Uh, you know, a lot of older people are dying. And of course, they knew right away uh, the reasons for that, the, 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 the demographics of Italy. Uh, Italy is a country that is aging rapidly. And they are kind of our textbook example of a stage five country. Stage five countries have very, very low birth rates and uh, very low death rates. And um, oftentimes you begin to see this inversion of birth rates to death rates. And so more people um, are actually dying than are being born, which is really kind of like the first time in human history that you're beginning to see uh, countries and people within countries deliberately make the choice to have so few children that your population levels begin to invert. Because sometimes you know, you'll know you see it due to mass migration or you'll see it due to outbreak in war or something along those lines, but never just strictly due to social choices of, hey, I just don't want to have kids. And so Italy is a country, even though it's a really traditional country, it's a Catholic country, uh, the, the country is beginning to change with regards to its social outlook and, and how uh, you know children are valued and, and society um, not that they aren't valued in Italy, because of course they are, but uh, it's it just in practice, uh, people have made the decision to delay childbirth. And like we said before, if you're delaying childbirth, you're not going to have as many children. So maybe two or three generations ago where you might have had, you know, six or seven or eight children in a country, uh, in a fa- per family in a country like Italy, now you're lucky to have even one. Uh, in, in stage five countries, you have uh, kind of like stage four, really, uh, you know, solid family pr- uh, planning methods, uh, really great health care, high status of women. Women are fully integrated into society, into the work environment. Uh, you're marrying later, um, good health care, good food supply, all of those things where people just think, you know what, life is really good right now. I don't want to mess it up with children. And uh, even though, you know, we know that that's really a fallacy, uh, but for a lot of people, that's the choice that they make. And so that's why you see in stage five societies, these just rapidly declining birth rates. So how do governments address this? Well, 
they enact what are called pro-natalist policies. And pro-natalist policies are ways for government to say, hey, can you guys please have some children? Because we're looking at our demographics and they're not looking too good. So places like Singapore or Denmark or Italy or France, they've all incorporated these pro-natalist policies. And pro-natalist policies could be anything like hey, we'll pay for your child care, to hey, we'll reduce your taxes if you have more children, we'll pay you to have more children. These are all really good examples of pro-natalist policies. Singapore and Denmark in particular had these um, advertisements. Singapore's was, you know, really sweet, you know, have more children. Uh, Denmark's was a bit more racy, you know, do it for Denmark. Uh, they had an advertising campaign a few years back with regards to that. Uh, but these are these are all hallmarks. If you If you have a country that is giving uh, free childcare, that is giving uh, tax, uh, massive tax breaks for having, you know, more than one child. That's a really good uh, indicator that you are probably having a country that is entering in or maybe already is in a stage five of demographic transition. And the problem with this stage five of DTM is that once you're in it, there's really, there's really no way out. It's often called a demographic death spiral or demographic winter because it's just impossible as a country to make your way out of there, out of that stage, even if you are engaging in some pretty uh, heavy pro-natalist government interaction to try and get people to have more children. Uh, because the bottom line is you cannot pay people to have children because it costs so much more to raise them than any child care, any uh, tax breaks would give you to have more children. And and the real negative consequence to this is what we call dependency ratio. This is that ratio between people who are working and people who are not, people who are paying taxes and people who are not, who are actually uh, being supported by the government. So we have a youth dependency ratio. These are kids. These are kids going to school that are getting the benefits of tax services. And then we have older people who are not working, who are also getting the benefits of, uh, you know, the services that, that come from tax dollars. But if your population levels decline over time, the people who are kind of wedged in the middle, those working the working cohorts, as they're called, they can't possibly pay for people at both ends of the spectrum, especially for the elderly population, because as they get older, healthcare becomes very, very expensive and we have longer life expectancies. So this is this is the the, the big quandary for countries that are in stage five is how do we pay for those that rapidly aging population? What do we do? So some countries deal with this via immigration. So if you look at Western Europe, part of the policy for the uh, the migration policy in Western Europe over the past uh, almost decade now has been to try and shore up the tax base. So the thought is if we have migrants that are coming up from um, Africa and over from Eastern Europe and from you know Southwest Asia, from the Middle East, they will come into our countries, they'll work, they'll pay taxes. And uh, they'll have children and those children will pay taxes. And so it will help to, to deal with our budget deficits. But of course, the reality is it didn't really play out that way. You had a lot of people that were migrating in and they weren't necessarily able to go fill in those jobs in the service sector, uh, you know, higher level education jobs, because the, some of them weren't even literate. Some of them didn't speak. Many of them didn't speak the language, had lower levels of education. And so it wasn't necessarily a good fit for the countries that they were migrating to into Western Europe, which of course, now you have even more people that are in need of government benefits. And so it it was, the process was beginning to, I don't call say bankrupt, but lead to increasing deficits in some of these countries in Western Europe. 
other countries like Japan, Japan is not really big on immigration. Um, they are a they are a what we call a nation state, meaning they are a country that is pretty much composed of people of their own ethnic group. And so to migrate to Japan, there's a whole laundry list of things that you have to do to to move to Japan. So Japan has, uh, in addition to, to pronatalist policies, which didn't really work, Japan has approached this from an automation point of view. And so that's why a lot of the artificial intelligence, a lot of the robotics that you see in manufacturing facilities, Japan has been at the forefront of this because to them, this is necessary for their financial survival. But the problem is, is automated, automated intelligence or, um, you know, robotic factory workers or whatever, they don't pay taxes. They don't pay into the system. And so from a financial point of view, it may help with dealing with labor issues, but it does not help with your declining tax base issues. So what are the positives from this? What are the takeaways? At the beginning of this, I told you there are some really um, amazing positive uh, forces that are happening on the planet. The first of which is, is that countries aren't stagnant. A country that's in a stage two society where maybe you do have very high poverty, poverty levels, uh, you know, not really good sanitation, uh, maybe some high infant mortality. We know that there is hope that over time, as more development occurs, as more investment occurs, as people, especially, especially education occurs, as more education occurs of women in particular, that those death rates will begin to decline and that eventually uh, population levels will begin to decline as fertility levels begin to decline. Because remember the, the, the connection, the more education women have, the lower the fertility levels that they have as well, because they have other options other than just having children. And this is a process that we believe will eventually kind of work its way throughout the planet. Uh, some places will take longer than others. Of course, in the West, we already know what's happening here. It's even happening in the United States. You know, there, there's a statistic that's been around for a very long time that in Japan, they sell more adult diapers than baby diapers, which is a really good indicator of how uh, how rapidly aging Japan is. But you know what? In the United States, we crossed over that threshold about two years ago as well. And I challenge you, the next time you go to the grocery store, go to the aisle where they sell diapers. Well, actually, it won't be in that aisle. But if you go to, you know, where like their shaving cream and razors and that kind of stuff, you'll see uh, probably a row now of adult diapers. And that is because, of course, the baby boom generation is beginning to, to age rapidly and are in need of products for things like incontinence, which happens, of course, as you age. So the planet is becoming more educated. Uh, you know, things like um, diseases that normally would have wiped out millions are beginning to become under control, things like malaria and whatnot uh, due to medical interventions. And eventually those population levels will decline. So I told you before, uh, there are a couple different schools of thought that population levels were supposed to max out in the year 2100. And I've seen uh, some estimates as high as 12 billion. And of course, we have about seven and a half billion people on the planet right now. Uh, and I've seen other estimates as low as 10 billion. Okay. And I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, Kara, that's just, that's billions more people that we're talking about here. And yes, that's true. But you will see a decline in fertility rates as women become more educated, as countries industrialize. And over time, that will de uh, lead to a de decrease of the entire population of the planet. Now, this is not going to happen overnight, especially because of demographic momentum, but it will happen in time. 
And then quite frankly, we're gonna have a whole other set of issues to deal with, namely, who's gonna buy all the stuff that used to be produced for all the people that used to be around. So just something else to throw out there. All right, well, that's all the time that we have for today. I always say it's a good day when I learn something new. And so I hope that you have learned something new today. Be sure to join us next time when we talk about the impact of the coronavirus on agriculture, specifically uh, meat production. There have been a ton of articles that I've seen this week that are actually borderline hysteria regarding meat production in this country. And so I want to try and uh, clear up some of the misconception that I'm seeing in the news with regards to meat production. Yes, you will still be able to eat a hamburger in six months time. As always, please click subscribe to support this podcast and to get all the latest updates as they happen. Feel free to email me at bitesizedhumangeo at gmail.com with questions you'd like answered. This is your show as much as mine. 